This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. This is the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, Joe Biden, the corporate Democrat, has taken the lion's share of black votes, despite his long history of anti-black politics. And black women with babies that could pass for white. Now, ain't that a conversation starter? But first... Ajamu Baraka, a veteran human rights activist who ran for vice president under the Green Party banner in 2016 and who is now lead national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, says much of the black political class has allied itself with the rich and attempted to strip black politics of any class analysis. This black misleadership class backs Joe Biden for president, despite his record as a mass black incarcerator, warmonger, and friend of the bank. What we see is a really a very cynical attempt on the part of the real establishment within the Democrat Party, which, of course, the liberal bourgeois elements that control that party. What they are attempting to do, using their high-paid consultants, high-paid black consultants, is to score political points trying to conceal the class dominance of that neoliberal element within the Democratic Party by pretending that the criticism and critique coming from Sanders and his supporters bringing attention to this establishment somehow is really a critique and criticism and condemnation of the voters in the Democratic Party and specifically of black folks. So we see, for example, a meme circulating on social media of black church women decked out in their Sunday best with the caption at the bottom that says something like, so this is the Democrat Party establishment. So the image and the caption is meant to ridicule the notion that there is a real establishment and to create the narrative that any critique of the Democrat Party establishment is indirectly or maybe even directly a critique of black voters. And it's been a very effective weapon that they have used to try to split the black vote away from the more progressive tendencies within the Democratic Party, meaning the Sanders campaign and others, so that Biden and the neoliberals can continue to exercise a veritable lock on that sector of voters. 
But of course, there is a black democratic establishment, and we at Black Agenda Report call that the black misleadership class. And you write in your piece that that class has for the past 30 or 40 years ignored class issues in black America and the race to the bottom that has hit black folks so hard. Exactly, exactly. And, and the role that this black misleadership class has exercised is to continue with that process of concealing the, the emerging and intensifying class contradictions, not only in the broader U.S. society and political economy, but specifically within black America. The profound changes that took place with the black class structure, with the displacement of black people from the inner cities through this process that we refer to as gentrification with the export of the industrial base from the U.S. to various parts of the world, including China and Mexico, that has had a devastating impact on black labor in the U.S. The austerity imposed on the U.S. population with even more devastating consequences for the black population that's more dependent on those critical social services and support processes that the state provides for poor people and working class people. All of this has been concealed by this black leadership class that has held itself up as the embodiment of black progress. While people are suffering and looking around for answers, they play the role of saying, look, look at us. We are now the administrators in cities. We have become more visible on television. We are occupying various spaces in the corporate sector. Uh, all you need to do is play by the rules, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and you could be just like us. As a matter of fact, look at what just happened with Barack Obama becoming the first black president. So this kind of, of organized confusion on the part of this class has helped to damper more militant uh, expressions of opposition and to do the ideological dirty work of the liberal white bourgeoisie in keeping people confused about their own conditions, their possibilities, uh, and where the efforts and attention of political opposition really should be directed. But it doesn't seem to be working on younger blacks. Well, it's not working that well, but there is, as I refer in my piece, there is an emerging new class, uh, new Negroes, as I refer to them. These 21st century young, slick operatives who have attached themselves to the Democratic Party who have been nurtured by the older element within the uh, black misleadership class, and they are attempting to assume their positions within that black misleadership sector uh, as the new wave of servants to white power. And in some ways, they are even more potentially dangerous because many of them have a more pronounced lexicon of black uh, radical phraseology. They use these terms that make it appear that they have some progressive and even radical politics. And so potentially they are more dangerous because they know how to talk that talk. But 
you know, even though they are assuming their positions and are helping to mislead and confuse many people, there is a real generational divide in the sense that there are other young black folks who are not part of that leadership circle, who are not part of that black petty bourgeois administrative and managerial class, who are seeing that there are some real contradictions, some real issues there in the society, that they are living through the fact that they have college degrees, but yet they're still flipping hamburgers and working in, in Walmart. Uh, and they are not falling for the old okey-doke. And they're raising some critical questions. Many of them uh, gravitated toward the, the Sanders campaign. So while these young black slick operatives working for Elizabeth Warren and and Joe Biden were trying to suggest that the Sanders forces had no black people. Many of these people were, in fact, in that campaign, supporting that campaign. And they were doing it not because Bernie Sanders is some outstanding radical or socialist, but he had a language that appeared to speak to some of their objective needs. So this has been, they've not been that successful in just roping in all of the various elements of the black community into the Democrat Party plantation in support of neoliberalism. And that's a good thing. The coronavirus situation is developing, and with each passing day, it becomes clear that the United States of all nations seems the least prepared, mainly because it has no national health system. This is one of the issues, Glenn, that uh, is receiving increasing attention is one of the issues that does, in fact, divide the Sanders forces from those of Joe Biden. And it is a issue that has a profound impact on the black community and black workers in particular, because one of the this health care issue and the health care, the, the private health care industry, this is now becoming front and center as the most important issue of this election. And it points to the strange role of this black misleadership class in the sense that they know that a disproportionate number of black people are the ones who are without any health coverage or are underinsured. They are part of that 87 million people that the Sanders people always speak to. They know that black people would benefit if there was, in fact, Medicare for all. But yet, because of their short-term class interest, they choose to mobilize black opinion behind a candidate, Joe Biden, who has expressed nothing but opposition to the ideal of Medicare for all. And we're going to see, as this coronavirus issue continues to unfold, that it will result in a disproportionate negative impact on African people, black people in the U.S., it's already becoming quite clear that the limitations of the private health insurance and the health care system as a whole is woefully underprepared to deal with this, this pandemic. Uh, and we're going to see that the most vulnerable communities and peoples are going to be suffering tremendously as a result. And there's going to be a more intensified demand coming from the people for a Medicare for all that covers all of the people in the U.S. So it's going to be a real dilemma for the managers of the Democratic Party, but a real opportunity 
for progressive forces. If we could prevent this class of misleaders from mobilizing our people uh, against their own interests. Yes, growing numbers of folks will see that people are dying from capitalism and from privatization. Exactly, and people are beginning to understand that in very, very clear terms. And that's been part of the the value of this whole exercise with the Bernie Sanders forces and the introduction on the mass level of the, at least the the word socialism. It is providing uh, opportunities for progressive forces to build on this uh, and to help people to understand the true nature of this capitalist system. So even though uh, Bernie Sanders won't go beyond uh, FDR reformism, that's all right. But the responsibility of progressive and revolutionary forces is to go beyond, to fill in those gaps, both in terms of domestic campaign, the domestic issues, but also the role of U.S. imperialism and how that plays out, impacts people in this country and around the world. So, you know, this, this situation with the coronavirus uh, is helping people to understand that issue around health care and helping them to, to make the connections between the lack of adequate health care in this country and the other objective human rights needs that are all also uh, neglected, like the uh, human right to housing, the human right to food, the human right to clean water and a clean uh, environment, the human right to education. All of these issues are beginning to crystallize in a understanding on the part of more and more people that for a state to have legitimacy, it must be committed to recognizing and fulfilling those objective human rights. And when it does not, then that state is illegitimate and the system that it is attempting to uphold must be overturned. You ran for vice president as a Green Party member. Do you anticipate a great exit from the Democratic Party at the end of this primary exercise? I think there will be a number of people who are in the Democratic Party who have uh, progressive politics. If the Democrats steal uh, the nomination from their forces and it, it, be, and it becomes clear uh, that they're not going to be able to reform that structure, I think that there will be large numbers looking for an alternative, and and one alternative they might look at will be the Green Party. So I have no doubt that's going to happen, whether or not to the extent that the Green Party would be prepared for that remains to be seen. But it's quite obvious that people are seeing the real limitations of what they call democracy in the U.S. There's going to be a stronger demand being made on, on everyone for a more open and expansive system or process that has a more developed democratic practices. And I think that the system is going to be forced to respond to that because of this ongoing crisis of legitimacy. If it does not, if they attempt to try to clamp down on those demands for democratic reform, it's only going to intensify the opposition and lead toward either a real, a real breakthrough for, for progressive and radical forces or for a more pronounced uh, neo-fascist configuration in the United States of America. 
But the establishment Democrats say there is no crisis of legitimacy. There's a crisis of Russians. Well, it appears that the Democrats are attempting to replay the campaign of 2016 because the thrust of their approach is to be anti-Trump. There's there's nothing that defines what they are for. And uh, they are engaging in what many of us, many people say is the real definition of insanity when you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And, And that's precisely why, Glenn, I don't really believe that the Democrats are in any way committed to defeating Donald Trump in a general election. I think their main concern is to maintain their cash cow, which is the Democrat Party apparatus. That's where they get their money. That's how people get paid. The Sanders campaign has demonstrated that it does not have to go to those same forces, hat in hand, uh, and beg for resources. And that is a real threat to the hacks within the Democratic Party. So they will advance a Joe Biden. They will attempt to hide him from the people within the uh, Democrat Party until he can secure the nomination. And then uh, when they can no longer hide him in the general, he will be completely obliterated by Donald Trump and there'll be a second term for Donald Trump. But in terms of that having an impact on their lives, there'll be none at all. And that's why they're not concerned at all, in my opinion, about defeating Donald Trump. But the issue is this, black folks don't know that. That's what's so despicable about the role of this black misleadership class, in particular, the young element of it. Our folks believe that the real intent is to defeat Donald Trump. That's what they're signing up for. That's why they have been voting for Joe Biden, not because they are opposed to the policies being pushed by Bernie Sanders, but they believe the hype that other white folks may not vote for Bernie Sanders because of his alleged democratic socialism. And they are laser focused on this issue of electability. Our folks have always been practical in that way. Remember their reluctance to fall behind Barack Hussein Obama the first time in, in 2007, 2008, because they didn't believe the white folks would really support a black candidate until Iowa. So that's how our people operate. But they don't know that the real concern of the black misleadership class and the Democrats in general is to just maintain the control of that apparatus. They have no, they, they can care less about the reelection of Donald Trump. And that's that cynicism on their part, that criminality on their part is what makes this, this class, but in particular these young, slick 21st century times so absolutely despicable. Yes, and in fact, Trump makes it easier for the Democrats, including the black misleadership class, because all they have to run against is Trump on race. Exactly. These hustlers, they reduce everything to the issue of race. Of course, you know, they are completely opposed to any kind of discussion around class. And they suggest that the Trump and his uh, racist supporters are the main enemy and that the Democrats, no matter who they might be, including a white supremacist like Joe Biden, is an advancement over Trump. But you know what, Glenn, that's not holding up and it won't hold up. People are buying into the artificially constructed narrative coming out of these last few primaries to create the notion of the inevitability of Joe Biden and the monolithic character of the black vote. Well, we know that's not the case. 
remember in 2016 that there was a distinct difference in terms of the voting patterns of black folks in some of those northern cities from what we saw earlier in the primaries in the South. And there's a growing recognition on the part of more and more black folks that they have a more affinity and a better understanding of the possibilities reflected in the policies being pushed by the Sanders campaign than the same old being pushed by Joe Biden. So it remains to be seen what will happen with this Democrat Party process, especially going back to your question around the coronavirus issue. Will this be used as a possible excuse to not only eliminate the nominating convention, but perhaps maybe even delaying or postponing the elections, especially if it appears that a Sanders insurgency has the possibility of winning the highest office. That was Sajamu Baraka, former vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. Bronco Marchatich is a longtime journalist and author of the book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Marcha Teach thinks that black voters have been opting for Joe Biden, not because they agree with him on policy, but because they perceive Biden to be more electable. I think we can probably explain it in in several different ways. I mean, for one, if you look at the exit polling in some of these states, for instance, in South Carolina, a majority, some majority, but a majority nonetheless of Biden voters in South Carolina said they wanted a, quote, complete overhaul of the U.S. economic system. And all these states that have voted so far, including the ones that, that Biden has walled Sanders in, Medicare for all, which is Sanders' flagship policy, which Biden is explicitly against, wins the majority of voters. So I think this is not about policy and about who people think would be the best person to usher in whatever political vision they want. I think this is largely a vote and an election around Trump, around getting rid of Trump, around who is electable in the United States. It's really the success of 40 years of propaganda that has been fed to people about who can and cannot win in the United States. And right now, basically, Ryan Grimm at The Intercept has made this point. Right now, I think the voters are playing pundit in many ways. They're thinking, well, this person is the is the person that other people will vote for, which, of course, is a mistake that people have made, that voters have made for decades now, always going with these kind of centrist establishment choices they end up losing to Republican candidates. I think the other thing about it is that Biden, obviously, he was vice president under Obama for eight years. I think that has a tremendous amount of political capital, particularly among older African-American voters. And that's really where the split lies. Younger African-American voters are overwhelmingly going for Sanders as younger people in general are. But it's the older voters that are gravitating towards him. Um, And I think, you know, Biden is someone who, whatever you think about his policy record, and, you know, I think it's pretty clear what I think about it when you read the book. Biden himself is a very affable, charming, likable person. I think that's been one of the keys to his success. He has this persona of an approachable, easygoing politician who takes the Amtrak and who you can you can say, hey, Joe, to at the local uh, restaurant or whatever. So I think all of these things have combined to make Biden the overwhelming choice among older black voters, despite his really quite terrible record.
Yes, voting for people that people think other people will vote for. Back in 2008, black voters were initially supporting, in the majority, Hillary Clinton in the belief that whites wouldn't vote for a black candidate. But when they did, after Iowa, black voters swiftly uh, turned to support Barack Obama almost unanimously. Yeah, that 2008 election, I think, is so instructive. And, you know, it's very ironic to me that the president that Democrats adore more than any other, and the president who certainly in, you know, if we look at the uh, the last 20 years has been the most successful for Democrats, is a guy that bucked every piece of conventional wisdom being peddled at the time and since by the exact same people who are now telling us that Joe Biden is a safer bet than, than Bernie Sanders. You know, Obama was called unelectable. People said that there's no way that America would ever elect a black man, let alone a black man who had the middle name Hussein and one who was also progressive, or at least sort of gestured at being progressive. Particularly when the Reverend Wright videos came out, people were saying, you know, this is a disaster. Picking Obama would be would be terrible. Republicans are gonna are gonna run these these speeches and ads 24/7. It'll sink him. As you say, black voters didn't even support Obama at first. Overwhelmingly, older voters went for Hillary Clinton because, again, they were internalizing the lessons or what they thought were the lessons of decades of defeat. And they thought, you know, we we have to pick the person closest to the center. That's the only way. And of course, this was all proven wrong by that election. Obama beat McCain. He ended up becoming a two-term president. He is considered, I mean, I, I think he had a lot of failures, but he is considered by a lot of Democrats to be the best president in their lifetime. And that shows you how foolish this thinking of let's lead with our head, not our hearts, can be. Because often the head is wrong. What we think we know, we don't really know. And, you know, Republican voters have realized this, I think. Republican voters have a history of gravitating to choices that seem extreme or out there but ultimately more in line with their policy vision and their vision for the country. And those candidates always win. You know, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and of course now Trump. But, but the Democratic electorate, I think we're learning now, is very different. And I think they have taken very different lessons from the previous few decades, unfortunately. As you said, exit polls show Democratic voters want a total overhaul of the economy. But you write that Biden was one of the earliest adopters of neoliberalism. And that would seem to set the voters up for a grave disappointment. Yeah, the idea that, you know, you can just get rid of Trump and everything is going to go back to normal. Well, what what does that actually mean? I mean, what was normal before Trump? There was drone assassinations by presidential edict. There was mass spying on the American populace. There were criminals in Wall Street who crashed the economy and then were rewarded for it by the government. There was the systematic dismantling of all the progress that had been made in terms of, of setting up a comprehensive welfare state in the United States over the 20th century. That was dismantled. Increasing influence of money in politics communities around the country that were floundering and and fading away and struggling, communities like Flint that were being literally poisoned because of the criminal neglect 
of not just the local and state, but the federal government as well. I mean, this was all normal. This was all the pre-Trump normal. And I argue in the book that this is exactly the kind of normal that led to Trump being elected in the first place. And unless Biden comes in and enacts a transformative agenda, which I very much doubt he will, given the nature of his campaign contributors and given the nature of himself and how he approaches politics, you're going to see the same neoliberal normal continue. Things will only get worse. And there is a very high risk that the next far-right figure comes after Trump is going to be someone who is not buffoonish and scandal-plagued, but someone who is very effective and knows what they're doing is ideologically committed. And that is a really terrifying prospect. Yes, you write that a Biden presidency could well end up taking the U.S. further down the far-right path. Yeah, as one example of this, Trump was able to win for several reasons. One of them was he was able to run to Hillary Clinton's left on certain issues. Because of historical commitments that the Democratic Party, at the urging of people like Biden, had abandoned. And so you see, for instance, Trump running to Clinton's left on trade, you know, opposing NAFTA and the TPP, both vulnerabilities that Biden also has, as well as Clinton. He ran to her left on foreign policy to an extent. I mean, you know, Trump said that he would commit war crimes, so, you know, let's not go too far. But he did lay out a less interventionist vision than Clinton, who wanted to set up a no-fly zone in Syria. And maybe most significantly, Trump ran as a Republican who was going to protect Medicare and Social Security. He was lying, of course, but for a lot of people, they didn't realize that. And given Clinton's husband's role in in taking aim at these programs, people may have felt that, that Trump was a safer bet for protecting some of these programs. Now, Biden has a 40-year, if not longer, history of trying to take aim at these exact same major entitlement programs. He has said repeatedly, including as soon as two years ago, that something had to be done about Medicare and Social Security. He has said on this campaign trail that he he believes he can work with Republicans, that it's possible to, to achieve some sort of bipartisan compromise. And where are Republicans going to look for bipartisan compromise when Biden comes in? Well, Mitch McConnell has already said, and other Republicans have already said, that now the tax cut has ballooned the deficit, they're going to have to make major cuts to programs like Social Security and Medicare to be able to bring the deficit down. A very old trick of the right in the United States that started with Reagan. It is not inconceivable, and I think it's very likely, in fact, that Biden This is the thing that he's going to work with Republicans on. Given his long history of wanting to take aim at these programs, and given that the Republicans are explicitly open to it, I think he will try and do that. Now, the danger there is that next time a far-right figure runs for office, they can do what Trump did. And if Biden makes those cuts, they can combine a sort of neo-fascist agenda, an explicitly racist, you know, even genocidal kind of policy platform, the likes of which we're seeing under Trump, and combine it with an appeal to people's economic interests, saying that, well, you know, I will restore these cuts that were made. I'll be the defender of these important programs that Americans depend on. And that could well end up being, if the Democrats can't credibly mount a case against that and make the case that they would defend the programs better, um, and if it's a Democratic president who does it, in fact, that will, I think, 
open up a lane for someone on the far right to come into power. And then after that, we would have to see what happens. Well, yes, President Obama did try to get a grand bargain with the Republicans. And Joe Biden was his point man in that effort. So certainly he's got experience in just that. Yeah, and when you say the point man for it, I mean, I think it's important to note that, that what did Biden actually do? If you read some of these accounts of the negotiations, the way that all these accounts paint it is that, that Biden basically just rolled over and let Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Republicans just trample over him. He, did, he gave them everything they wanted every time. And the reason it didn't work out was that Republicans were too, too uh, stubborn and obstinate. But fundamentally, they got everything they wanted. And Harry Reid, at one point, actually had to call up Obama to tell him, don't let Biden talk to McConnell anymore, because every time he does, he just gives the entire house away. And for Biden, this was a virtuous thing. You know, for Biden, his priority is not necessarily protecting these programs, not necessarily protecting the working class of the United States. It's more the the process of bipartisanship and compromise that really for him is the goal. And after that 2010 shellacking that Obama and the Democrats received, Biden negotiated with McConnell over extending unemployment insurance to Americans, a no-brainer. And McConnell extracted so many concessions from that even even conservative Democrats like Dianne Feinstein were outraged at the end of the deal. And, And Sanders, Bernie Sanders ended up launching his famous eight-hour filibuster against that very deal. And then a few months later, Biden was warmly celebrating Mitch McConnell over this deal, saying, you know, they said that bipartisanship was dead, and look at that, we managed to get it done. This deal that, you know, had outraged Democrats. And he said, you know, this shows that the process worked. This shows that fundamentally, all of us in power, there are no real differences between us. We all agree on the issues. We all agree with what has to be done We might have a few differences here and there, but fundamentally, we are all united. And if you know anything about Mitch McConnell, and if you've just even just watched what has been happening with the Republican Party since the early 90s, that is a really alarming thing, that this is the way that Biden views this political moment. You write that Biden has tended to follow the instructors of his wealthy backers. That sounds like an understatement. Yeah, I mean, he actually won his first Senate campaign on the back of small donors and on the back of a very active volunteer organization that was door knocking for him, you know, all over the the state. And then by 1978, because Biden's nervous about re-election, he starts opening his money to corporate donations and and donations from, from rich people. Previously, before that, he had been very critical of this practice. He said that he would never prostitute himself for instance. He talked about how both parties were controlled by big money. He talked about how during his 72 campaign, he had had a meeting with a bunch of wealthy donors who had told him, you know, are you serious about the fact that you want to raise the capital gains tax rate? And he said, if I wanted their money, I knew what I was supposed to say. And he talked about how anytime that you get a donation, there are strings attached. There's an implicit quid pro quo. And then by 78, nonetheless, despite this record of public utterances about this, he starts taking money from the rich, from big business, a lot of it out of state, doing fundraisers out of state, particularly in California, 
which was then the epicenter of the anti-tax taxpayers revolt. He's getting money from actually specific businessmen who had supported that taxpayers revolt. And from there on, Biden's able to continue this career where he has this contradictory coalition of, on the one hand, unions and union contributions and liberals and African-American voters. And on the other hand, big business donations, some Republican voters and, and sort of Republican leaning voters, suburban voters. And the most famous, I think, case of him doing the bidding of donors like this is the bankruptcy bill which Biden pushed and, and was ruinous for many middle-class families. It was, it has been, and still is ruinous for students across the country who cannot get rid of their student loan debt because of this bill. And this was a bill that was famously supported by the credit card company MBNA, which was Biden's top contributor throughout his career. They were based in the state of Delaware. They hired his son, and even after his son left, as Biden was pushing this bill, they were paying his son a consultant fee, a monthly consultant fee. And of course, this bankruptcy legislation, when it was passed, this is what MBNA wanted. They, they didn't like the fact that Americans were relatively easily able to get rid of their debts that they had, including the credit card debts. And this meant that you know, they would continue to pay off their debts to credit card companies like MBNA. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's many other cases. I mean, you know, Biden was against Clinton's health care reform. He actually boasted that when Clinton had called him to his office to talk about it, that Biden told the paper, well, I resisted his, his attempts to sell me on health care reform. Well, Biden at that point had received about $150,000 in donations from health insurers over 15 years. And is there any wonder that he has had a distaste for national health insurance? And not just now, when he's also getting money from health insurers and, and pharmaceuticals, but, but for a long way through his career, you know, going back decades. So, yeah, I think that element of his fundraising, I think, explains not everything, but explains a lot about some of the choices that he has made. From your observation of Biden, do you think that he's suffering from early dementia or has he always been like this? I'm not going to diagnose Biden. I'm not a medical professional, but I think it's clear to anyone who has even remotely followed Biden's career that there's something going on with him, that he is not operating at full capacity. Let's put it that way. This is not the Joe Biden of the 1970s or the 1980s. It's not even the Joe Biden of 2012 when he demolished Paul Ryan in a one-on-one -on -one debate. It's not even the Joe Biden of, of 2015 and 2016. I mean, this Joe Biden is... He's forgotten Obama's name multiple times. He's called Theresa May Margaret Thatcher multiple times. He talked about working with Deng Xiaoping, the deceased Chinese leader, on the Paris Climate Accord in 2015, 2016. His debate answers, this has all been well documented. Anyone who watches him at an unscripted event where he has to think of his feet knows that there's something off going on with him. And Biden, for most of his career, was a very sharp, very quick-witted, eloquent politician. I think that was one of the keys to his success. And this Biden is, frankly, unrecognizable. So I don't, know, I don't know what exactly the issue is. I can't speculate. I am not a medical professional. But I think it's clear that he is having some sort of difficulties, some sort of cognitive difficulties. And to be honest, they, they almost seem to be getting worse. I mean, forgetting the opening of the Declaration of Independence and the public speech, this stuff is really worrying. And, you know, for people who want to say that this is scurrilous or to talk about this as beneath political discourse, 
I'll remind you that for the past three or four years, since Trump has been on the scene, there has been constant, sometimes wild and, and even irresponsible speculation about his mental state, about his cognitive difficulties. And I think it's clear that, that Trump is also suffering from some sort of cognitive decline too. But it's different in nature to whatever is happening with Biden. I mean, I mean, honestly, Biden, the way he's performing in some of these public appearances, makes Trump look like a Homeric orator. So the Democrats can sort of try and hide him for now and pretend that this is all just sort of some smear campaign. But eventually voters will be able to see him performing in real time, whether it's now or during a general election, and they'll see with their own eyes what is clear to so many people in the uh, reporting business. People are voting for Joe Biden because of electability, and I think they need to consider the fact that this experiment has already been tried once. The Democrats ran an establishment-friendly, corrupt, war-supporting, trade-deal-supporting, neoliberal candidate once against Donald Trump, one who was actually a very good debater, who could hold her own against Trump one-on-one, who didn't ramble incoherently, who had actually an enthusiastic base of supporters who believed in her, and she still lost. And to me, the idea of nominating someone who has the exact same features or elements, but, but even worse, and lacking both those skills are going one-on-one against Trump and lacking that enthusiastic voter base, to me, is madness. And even beyond that, we should think about what kind of person we want in power dealing with this pandemic that is now erupting. Someone like Sanders, who outlined a broad, specific agenda for dealing with this virus, including a moratorium on evictions and utility cutoffs, and things like emergency lending for businesses to do construction for emergency homeless shelters and all this kind of thing, expand the Meals on Wheels program? Or do we want someone like Biden who literally back in the 1980s said that for a whole range of areas where heretofore the federal government was involved, it will remain involved in the environment because that crosses borders, it will be involved in international drug questions, but less involved in direct social questions like daycare, education, or health. Biden is someone who has never believed in the power and the necessity of government to step in and to deal with the things that are afflicting people. And is this someone who is the safest pair of hands to put the country in charge of, not just to go up against Trump and to deal with his other crises, but to deal with this pandemic that is raging right now? I think that is what I want to leave people with. That was author and journalist Bronco Machetich. White supremacy makes itself felt in many ways. Sonita Moss is a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Pennsylvania who co-authored an article that focused on media fascination with light-skinned babies born to black women. Over the past several years prior to writing the article, Dr. Roberts and I would frequently discuss seeing articles in the Huffington Post or ABC Online, or in this case, the Daily Mail, discussing this miraculous occurrence of a woman with dark skin giving birth to a baby with fair skin and light eyes and blonde hair. Now, I believe that in the African-American community, most of us understand the concept of passing for white, and I think many of us actually have men in our family who can 
pass for white. And so I think that there's less of this attachment to it being something miraculous and unheard of. But as we talk about in the article, because there is this white ownership of the media and the perspective from which these occurrences are explained, it is seen as miraculous because it's less well understood. And also because there's a desire to propagate the notion that race is something inherent, that genes can actually be racialized as opposed to it just being, you know, simple gene expression. Yes, is it rare for someone who has darker skin and someone to have who has lighter skin to give birth to a child with blonde hair and blue eyes, of course it's more rare, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible or inexplicable or, you know, a gift from God, as someone described a blonde hair, blue-eyed child born to, to Black parents in Nigeria that we outlined in the article. So we believe that what's happening when it comes to all of the pandemonium surrounding white, quote-unquote, white babies born to Black mothers is that there's a great deal of racial voyeurism and racial anxiety that's being brought up when you see these images. Because we live in a society that is, first of all, it's a white supremacist in the sense that whiteness is structured in our society as being superior in every system that we can think of institutionally from the banking system to educational systems, to healthcare, to government, to the military, all the way down to, you know, the interactions that you might have walking into a grocery store or just going down the street. Everything is organized and arranged in a racially hierarchical fashion. And whiteness is considered best or ideal or unattainable or something that you would like to attain, whereas blackness is almost always located at the bottom in some way. And so what that means is when you have this seeming mismatch between a parent and their baby, folks don't know how to make sense of it because it brings up all of the anxieties that we have around the fact that we live in a world that is so racially unequal. You know, whiteness and blackness have been seen as diametrically opposed to each other for so long, right, that seeing this very fair-skinned baby coming from a brown parent, it just brings up a lot of discomfort. And the way that folks kind of deal with that discomfort is by talking about how unusual or how rare it is or how it's an anomaly, right, for this to happen because we do not have the racial literacy or the racial understanding that the way that we look, our phenotype is simply just expression of genes. It has nothing to do with our quote-unquote blood, the way that we talk about races being in the blood. It has nothing to do with a white gene or a black gene. It's simply an expression of genes, right? But because we don't live in a society where we're able to have open and honest discussions about why we do have differing phenotypes from different people, what does that really mean? Why do we think race is real? We don't have those conversations and therefore every single time you see very, very light-skinned children or white-passing children with brown parents, there's a shock and awe that's accompanying with it because we cannot, we haven't yet been able to have that larger conversation about, about race and about indeed racism. You write that anti-blackness is a central mm-hmm. project of the mass media. And a central yeah. project, of course, becomes a product, something to be consumed. So there seems to be a great appetite to consume these stories of miraculous gifts of whiteness from God. 
Yes, indeed, absolutely. And, you know, when we look at the history of our country, for a very long time, racial spectacles or racial voyeurism has existed, meaning you, when you have the placement of the black body for the enjoyment of the white gaze to examine it as something, you know, for example, if you take Sarchi Bartman, also known as the hot and tot Venus, the woman who was from South Africa who was taken and carted around as a circus freak by Europeans for so long because of her body, because of her physical features. That has long happened and occurred in the United States because this racial spectacle has been the way we've been able to manage all of the racial anxieties that we have around the differences that have been ex exploited at the behest of the Europeans and the later white people who are able to benefit from white privilege and white supremacy. Yes, and we see blackface among all white mm -hmm. gatherings, a kind right. of racial spectacle mm -hmm. when there's no right. black folks there, just white people. Right. Absolutely, and that's another example of the way in which racial voyeurism racial anxiety is coming up out of these young people, right? We live in a society that more and more, I believe, with the rise of the Trump administration and indeed white nationalism around the globe, we live in a society where race and racism is inescapable, but we're unable to talk honestly about it. We're unable to have accountability demanded, and we're unable to have reparations or repair due to racism and racial harm. And so what comes out, I believe, from these young people and even people older at sports games, right? They're painting their face black, they're painting their faces red. That is just one example of how they can relieve that tension that they're feeling. And indeed that plays into this notion of colorblindness, right? Of race doesn't really matter. You know, we can paint our faces black and it's because we love this culture and we admire this culture and you're making a big deal about it if you protest to us wearing black face or wearing brown face, when actually the fact that one would even do that is indicative of how little respect and how little understanding there is of the depth of racial inequality in this country and, of course, around the world. Now, you did a study, you examined several yes. instances of media reports of these yes. so-called white babies to black right. women. What did you right. find? What was the commonality here? So we found that there were several racial logics or ways that the commenters and also the folks who wrote the articles so the journalists themselves were deploying to understand what they felt was something that was anomalous, something that didn't make sense, right? We have to make sense of the things that happen in our world no matter what it's about. And in the case of race, in which there's so much discomfort and so much misunderstanding and such a lack of accountability, rather than try to understand it through a lens of this is something that naturally occurs, it happens all over the world, especially in Latin America or in a place like Brazil, where you can see all shades of skin in one single nuclear family. Rather than doing that, they articulate these particular racial logics to explain it. And so, so what we found in these articles exploring two separate families, one Nigerian family who gave birth to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby, and then one interracial couple 
where the black woman gave birth to two children who were quote unquote considered white miraculously, both the way that the article was written and the responses in the comments reflected specific narratives about race. So for one, people truly believe that race is biological, that race is something that is in your blood. It is not something that is politically and socially constructed in our societies. Another thing that we found is that even though your phenotype determines race, Black people cannot produce whiteness. So even though the children might be considered white, there were, for some of the commenters, they were determined to say it doesn't matter, these children are not white because of this seeming mismatch between blackness and whiteness. And then another strain that we found that was really common and disturbing, but also predictable, was that these black women must have been cheating on their husbands. There's no way, particularly with the Nigerian couple, because both of them are black people, there's no way that this is his baby. She clearly was you know, there were some things I learned while uh, doing the research for this. You know, it was like by the woodshed. There's some things that was said about this is like a woodshed baby or this is a milkman's baby or where did they steal this baby from or they're just trying to take advantage of this baby by being in this article. So there was this intense desire to judge and identify the Black women as being promiscuous or, or cheating on their husbands. You seem to advocate that Mm -hmm. scholars should be expanding their studies in different societies to examine this phenomenon in different places and how it plays out. Shouldn't one of those arenas be Latin America? Latin America is a region where white supremacy remains Uh operative, even Uh in societies Mm -hmm. where there's been a great deal of racial mixing, but still the whiter, the better. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. And there's one scholar, a sociologist, who is particularly impressive and has done a lot of work in this area. And her name is Dr. France Windance Twine. She's at the University of California at Santa Barbara, I believe. And she studied a lot about Brazil being this racial democracy, but also Brazil mimicking a lot of the same white supremacist logics, similar to what we find in the U.S. And as well, there's another sociologist called Janeri Osuji, and her research is about interracial couples in Brazil and talking about the same issues that they face as interracial couples in the U.S. around Black men being sexualized as being, you know, hyper-masculine and being desirable for that. And then also Black women with their white partners being seen as sex workers. So, So many of these narratives and these racial logics that we think only happen in the United States because of our very, very distinctive history with enslavement and exploitation, it's global. It's all over the world. My dissertation research is actually about France, and I lived in Paris for two years until about eight months ago. I moved back to the U.S. to finish my dissertation, and what I found was by talking to folks there and living there myself, many of the same racist and racial logics that are here are also in France, particularly are the dangerousness and criminality of brown and black people, right? And there it's different in the sense that 
there's this demarcation between being African and being black that's really important that we don't necessarily see as much in the United States. But the one drop rule, they don't do that over in France. But what you have is a lot of North Africans, or as they call them, Arabs, a lot of the Muslim community is demarcated strongly as not being black, but still they're treated as criminals. They're disrespected in public. They're harassed by the police. I saw it myself in front of my own eyes. I filmed police harassing black men on the streets, throwing them against the wall, patting them down. Many of the same things that are happening to brown and black communities here, they're happening all over the world. And it just shows how many of our struggles are linked. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 